last week we um, began the season of Lent on Sunday mornings, and so I want to mention just a couple things real quick. Um, in the back of the room in the sanctuary, and if you're online, you could just pick a spot in your house. We have a cross set up, and there are note cards next to it. And so at any time in the service, if it's during songs or sermon, doesn't really matter. If you feel led to just recognize there's something in your life that's hindering you from knowing all that God has for you, um, write it down, and you can literally stick it, stick it there. There's nails that you can just attach it to. Because we recognize that at times, there are things that keep us from being who maybe God has called us to be. And it's interesting because I think some of the things that impact our lives in really interesting ways are things that we have no control over, right? So here's one of the things that, I mean, there's all kinds of debate on how much birth order matters. Um, there are certain traits that come out of birth order. I don't, I don't know if you, maybe you're the, maybe I'm just one of those weird people that reads all that kind of stuff. Um, but there's a website, parents.com, and it gives some interesting feedback on birth order. And so I'm just going to read you some, some excerpts about birth order and how it may impact you or doesn't impact you, or you'll go, huh. I'm a firstborn and I'm not that, or I'm the youngest and I'm not that. But I was thinking, um, here's some, some things. So firstborns typically are raised with a mixture of instinct, trial, and error. Parents are usually, by the book, caregivers, extremely attentive. They're really sticklers on the rules. Um, they're neurotic about the minutiae. This, in turn, may cause the child to become a perfectionist, always striving to please their parents. This, I'm skipping part of this next section, but sometimes that causes the firstborn to act like a mini-adult. They're also diligent wanting to excel at everything they do. Uh, firstborns tend to be, and here's the list, right? Reliable, conscientious, structured, cautious, controlling, achievers. All right, so if you're a firstborn, there you go. Now, if you're a middle child, um, here's what kind of happens with the middle child. Parents are a little less ruling with the iron fists. Um, middle children typically get less attention than the oldest child because there's more children now. That's how that works. Um, the middle child often feels left out. Well, I'm not the oldest. I'm not the youngest. Who am I? Some of you right now, I know this is my life. Um, middle children are toughest to pin down because they have siblings that they play off of. In general, middle children tend to possess the following birth order traits. People-pleasers, somewhat rebellious, thrives on friendships, has large social circle, peacemaker. And then we have the youngest child. You know, like This could be whether it's three or 55 kids. It's still the youngest child. Uh, youngest children tend to be the most free-spirited due to their parents' increasingly laissez-faire attitude towards parenting. The second or third or fourth or fifth child. Um, the baby of the family tends to have the following birth order traits, fun-loving, uncomplicated, manipulative, outgoing, attention-seeker, self-centered. Well. <laughs> so why am I talking about birth order and these things? Well, the truth is, I am an oldest child. And I fit the description fairly well. In fact, my siblings used to say to me, okay, dad, because I was like their other dad, even though there's only three years for me and my next youngest sibling. And so I left out the downside of all of these different traits, right? Because these were the positives, mostly. Um, here's some of the downsides of firstborns. Now, this line I left in on, on purpose because if my siblings occasionally listen to sermons, I want them to hear this line. Um, so if you're listening today, they could get this later. It says, many parents spend more time reading and explaining things the firstborns, 
It's not as easy when other kids come into the picture, says Frank Farley, PhD, a psychologist at Temple University in Philadelphia, who has studied personality and human development for decades. That undivided attention may have a lot to do with why firstborns tend to be overachievers, he explains. Here's the line from my siblings. In addition to usually scoring higher on IQ tests and generally getting more education than their brothers and sisters, it goes on to talk about that. So um, that means I'm smarter than my siblings if they hear this. You can tell them I said so. Success comes with a price is the next line, though. Firstborns tend to be type A personalities who never cut themselves any slack. They often have an intense fear of failure. So nothing they accomplish feels good enough. And because they dread making a misstep, oldest kids tend to stick to the straight and narrow. They're typically inflexible. They don't like change and are hesitant to step out of their comfort zone. That one's not so good, right? <laughs> Keeps going. It goes on to write. They can be quick to take charge and can be bossy when they do. That burden can lead to excess stress for a child who already feels pressure to be perfect. Ouch. Think about my kids now. If I make sure to put not put extra pressure on them, right? You go, why, um, why would you tell us that? Well, because I'm a bit of a rule follower by nature. Like, that's nature. I'm, I'm a less rule follower today than I've ever been in my life, which is crazy to say, right? Because I'm still pretty much a rule follower, but I am the least rule follower I have ever been. But here's why that's been a problem at times. I have often thought I need to do something to earn God's approval. I need to act a particular way for God to love me more. In fact, what I have often thought is if I could just do more of the right thing, then I would able to receive more of God's love in ways that make sense to me. If I would just do more of the right thing, I would get more of his approval. Now, why am I saying that? Because I have no proof of this, but I think Paul, from the scriptures, was a firstborn. I really do. Go back and look at Paul's life. In fact, he did all the things he could to try to earn what he thought God would bless him with and for. If you go read about his life, in his own words, um, he wanted to follow all the rules. He said, I was a Pharisee among Pharisees. In other words, they followed all the rules, and I followed them even better. (laughs) I like the rules. In fact, Paul was such, in his own words, a zealous person. He was such a fanatic that he went to even persecute people who didn't follow the rules. Because he thought then maybe God would love him more. Now, Paul doesn't use that kind of language, but we're just kind of paraphrasing what we see in his life throughout the whole New Testament. And eventually he acknowledged that his zealotry and his fanaticism were both destructive to becoming who God wanted him to be. And maybe you're like me, you go, well, Paul had the scriptures, right? He had the Old Testament. Um, But I don't think Paul knew who God was before he encountered Jesus. In fact, I think Paul read the Old Testament much like you and I might read it, which is not in light of Jesus. We just read it as as it is and go, oh, okay. Um, And I don't think that's how Jesus wanted his early followers or God really intended for us to understand who he was. In fact, that's part of why Jesus came. And so Paul now writes these words from Romans chapter 4, beginning with verse 13. So keeping in mind Paul's background as a person who's a fanatic, zealot, He now writes these words, going from a rule follower to writing this. It was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir 
of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who depend on the law are heirs, faith means nothing. And the promise is worthless. Because the law brings wrath, and where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, the promise comes by faith, so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also those who have the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God, in whom he believed. The God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. Against all hope, Abraham, in hope, believed, and so became the father of many nations. Just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words, it was credited to him, were written not for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness, for us who believe in him, who raised Jesus, our Lord, from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins, and was raised to life for our justification. Now, Paul's writing about Abraham, and maybe you don't know a lot about Abraham, and that's okay, but here's what we can tell you about Abraham. In Genesis chapter 12, God says to Abraham, because of your faith, I will make you great, and you will be a blessing to the world. I will bless you so that you can bless the world. And then in Genesis chapter 17, he has this promise Abraham's given that you will be the father of many nations, or even all nations, depending on what scriptures you read. You'll be the father of many or all nations. This person, who's about 100 years old, has got an old wife. You're going to be the father of many nations? Like, God, I don't know how you know how this works. Um, 100-year-old people don't have kids because kids are exhausting. And they can't have kids because they will then die for sure. But it's important to note that because of Abraham's faith, he then lived in a particular way. I would say it this way. Faith is what leads to human participation in the righteousness of God. Faith is what leads to human participation in the righteousness of God. And righteousness means to live in right relationship with. So it's faith that leads us to live in right relationship with God. Now, did you catch how Paul, the rule follower, began this section? I mean, Paul, the guy that was all about the rules, he began with saying like, well, um, actually, I'll just read it again. His exact words were, it was not through the law. Huh. You mean it's not the rules? 
Okay, but rules are easy, right? Rules, I can understand rules. Do this, don't do that. Got it. I can, I can track with that. But faith is not about rules. In fact, what Paul says is so difficult for us firstborns, it's if we're focused on rules, then our faith is actually worthless. Okay, Paul, can you rewrite that? Because I don't like how you said that. Can you just say it a little differently? Like, hey, follow all the rules and have faith. It's not what he writes. I wish it would. It'd be helpful for me. It may be helpful for you. Um, for you youngest children, it's definitely not helpful because you don't follow rules anyway. Um, I work with some of those people. So, um, and they're teaching our children right now. Um, I'm sorry. <laughs> See, it's not rules that get us in right relationship with God, but it's faith. And so what's that mean for us? In fact, um, for the early followers of God, for Abraham and his descendants, for the first 430 years, they had no rules. Be faithful. Be in right relationship with me. That was it. It took 430 years before they had rules other than your men need to be circumcised. That was the only rule they had. And so 430 years later, we have the law comes in, Moses comes in, and all these things come happen. And and in Jesus' day, they're so focused on doing the right thing. Forget the right heart, but just do the right thing. Now, I want to be clear. Don't do the wrong thing intentionally because it's not about the rules. That's just dumb. (laughs) But don't think that your faith is dependent upon what you do. In fact, um, I love this quote from William Greyhouse, one of the Scholars in the Church of Nazarene, former general superintendent, he writes this, Christian faith is not a work we do instead of the Old Testament law. On the contrary, it is surrender, abandonment of schemes of of self-salvation, which really are self-destructive. In other words, you and I cannot do it. Paul is saying, without the law, there is no transgression. I can't do the wrong thing if it's not for the law. In fact, the law becomes a stumbling block to us. And this other line from William Greathouse says this, the law does not promise blessings on those who observe it. Rather, it invokes a curse on those who violate it. Did you catch that? That's really good. <laughs> I'm going to say it again. Um, the law does not promise blessing on those who observe it. Rather, it invokes a curse on those who violate it. So I began with birth order because if I'm honest, um, my tendency has been that somehow I could achieve God's love. I could just do the right thing. And God would love me more for that. But over time, what I came to the place again and again and again, and still again, I don't measure up to God. Still doesn't happen, right? In fact, um, I've too often seen God as a God of wrath because God is a God of rules. Because if God is only a God of rules, then God is definitely a God of wrath. But that's not really who God is. But if I'm not careful, I'll find myself in that same position again and again. You see, 
um, a few years ago now, I think, I think time, COVID time, I don't know what time it is anymore. Um, a long time ago, I think, or maybe like just last year, um, I don't know, it was like 10 years. I got a lot more gray hair this year than last year, so who knows, you know. Um, but we went through this thing called the Enneagram. It's a fancy way of saying this. So we all have unique personality traits, characteristics, ways that we're created, ways that we function. And it's really cool to learn about each other and about our own traits and things we can do better and, and go, oh, so that's what I'm like when I'm like at my best. Sometimes it's kind of scary, actually. Like, oh, that's who I am? Oh, no wonder people don't like me. Um, no. Um, but we also found out some unhealthy things about ourselves. Right? There's the cool parts of who we are when we're at our healthiest. And then there's the parts of us where when we're stressed, or struggling, or upset, our unhealthy portions come out as well. So I'm a, I'm a three on the Enneagram. If you, you want to go Google that later, it's fascinating. Read. I got a book I can tell you about. It's kind of it's helpful to understand yourself and others, so there you go. Uh, it's good for families. Don't do it with your young kids because you'll just mess them up. Um, but your older kids, use, you can use it with them, like the ones out of high school. But I, I'm number three. I'm an achiever by nature. Well, what's the downside of that? My greatest fear becomes my greatest weakness. I just don't measure up. I'm just not good enough. If I would just work more, I would be better. Um, and so that's why sometimes grace is really hard for me. I don't know about you. Maybe it's, maybe it's not yours, right? Um, I can tell you, Pastor Holly, she's a two. She's a helper. She wants to help people, but then doesn't want anyone to help her, right? So, like, there's strength and weakness. Like, we all have these give and takes, right? So, like, I'm going to work really hard. The problem then is, like, I'm going to work really hard and not acknowledge, like, when I can't do something or it's not good enough because it admits failure, and failure is unacceptable. What about you? In that kind of modality of living, I find then that grace becomes a difficult thing for me. Why? Because grace, by its definition, is unearned and undeserved, and God offers it to all of us. Unearned and undeserved, and he offers it to all of us, period. So I remind myself yesterday, I read the story from, I think it's Matthew 25, I don't remember the, the, the text, I'm sorry, but, but the story of the workers in the vineyard, where um, Jesus sees these people not working, and he says, oh, master, the master says, come work. And they start working at 9 in the morning, and he sees some more people at, like, noon. And he brings them in about 3 o'clock, he sees some more. And then he gets some more people right before closing time. And he brings them in, too, and he gives them all the same pay. And I'm like, I for sure would have been one of the 9 o'clock workers. I'm like, are you kidding me right now? I was here all day. Here's your 10 minutes, and he gets the same thing I do. And he's like, yeah, it's my money. <laughs> right, grace, that's what it looks like. And it's been difficult for me at times, maybe for you. But here's what I want us to understand in this. Jesus died so that we could, could know that we don't measure up, and it is okay, because he measures up for us. Now, for some of us today, that's hard for us to comprehend. That God's love for us extends beyond what Paul's trying to say here. Listen, it's so great. It's beyond what you could ever imagine. God's love for you is greater than you could ever comprehend, and there is nothing, I mean nothing, Nothing you can do for God to love you less. Yeah, but 
what about when I did this or when they did that? What about them? God's like, did you not hear the story I just, my son told you about? Workers in the vineyard, come on in. You get the same pay? I didn't say it was fair. Grace isn't fair. None of us deserve it. Unearned, undeserved. But God's love for us extends beyond what is reasonable. What makes sense? Because this is who God is, and this is what Paul struggled with. I mean, that's who God is? He doesn't want me just to follow all the rules and do all the right things. No, no, no. He wants you to know that he loves you and wants to be in right relationship with you. That's why it was credited to Abraham as righteousness, because of his faith. It's why you catch the last section of that scripture. It says this, against all hope. Against all hope. In other words, when it was incredibly hopeless, Old people don't have babies. 100-year-old people don't have kids. In fact, when God made that promise, they laughed. And their son Isaac, <laughs> he's laughter. By the way, we got really lucky. We named him Isaac, and he laughs all the time. It's great. Um, wasn't because we were that old. <laughs> Still younger than Abraham, right? Like, this is great. Um, against all like it should be a marketing slogan against all hope it should be like the marketing slogan like i i kind of love marketing slogans um i'm i'm not a marketing person but i love like the way they take words and they make them simple to try to get across their message because right? we don't remember like long slogans but we do remember short ones right Here, here's just a few let's see if you remember these um i'm loving it mcdonald's right like okay have it your way Burger King, if you didn't know that, too bad for you. Um, just do it. Nike. Um, this one's one of my favorites. Impossible is nothing. It's actually Adidas. I mean, they don't do a really good job of their marketing part with that part, but the, the phrase is great. Impossible is nothing. Impossible is nothing. I I think on this text, Abraham would rewrite these words and he would say it this way. Nothing is impossible with God. Nothing is impossible with God. There is nothing that if God has promised, he will not see to fruition. Now, sometimes we get God's promises messed up. We, we think, we, oh, that's a promise of God. No, it's not. It's in the Bible. But it's not a promise of God. But what God does promise is his grace is extended to us, that we are loved beyond what? makes sense. We are his. In fact, two old people, as good as dead, it's literally what it says in scriptures. They're really old. Wombs dried up. Two old people, as good as dead, would start a family that would last for generations and generations. Abraham would not only be the father of a family, which by itself was crazy, be the father of many nations, of all nations. In fact, he would be the father of those who live as a people of faith. He would be the father of all those who say, Jesus is Lord. As good as
against all hope. See, to inherit God's gift, it's gift. It requires faith. Not law, not rules. Now, that faith, as we know with Abraham's life, impacts then how we live, but it's the faith that brings us to the place that it impacts how we live. Because if it's law, we're never going to do enough. We will never measure up. We will always find ourselves coming up short. But if it's love, we'll find that we can enter into right relationship. And just like Abraham, it can be credited to us as righteousness. See, God gave Abraham a fresh start. And he gives us the same. God gave Abraham a fresh start. And he gives us the same. So it's been years ago now that I, I heard this story. And um, it's really a fascinating story. A, a California agricultural researcher um, won a grant. And in this agricultural research grant, he could go anywhere in the world he wanted to go and look at the farm way they farmed. Um, and so he... Decided to go to New Zealand because, I, I mean, probably a place not just going to show up in New Zealand. So he went to New Zealand, and, and he decided he was going to look. At, um, he got fascinated by their sheep farms. I mean, I know. This is obviously an agricultural researcher because who else is excited by sheep farms? And he shows up at this sheep farm, and he notices because all the sheep farms he's ever seen in his life have fences all over the place. And the sheep farms in New Zealand, there are no fences. And so he's looking around, and eventually he just can't, he can't contain it any longer. And he goes, okay, I have to ask the question, why do you have no fences? Don't you lose sheep? And they're like, no. So, okay, well, how do you not lose the sheep? I said, oh, well, that's, that's the secret. We dig really, really deep wells. And the water is so good. They never wander too far away. And if they start to wander, we just dig another deeper well. And the water is so rich, they keep coming back. Like, this, this, this is true. We just dig deeper wells with good water. And for these sheep, they know it's a source of life. And they keep coming back again and again. And they never get too far away because they know that this is the source of life. So I was thinking, because I love that story, what if you and I know the source of life? What if we recognize that the closer we get, the more life-giving God becomes, and the further away we get, the harder it is to know, but, but when we find ourselves coming back, but what if also not only did we know the source of life, which is the grace of God, unearned, undeserved, what if then, Not only do we know the well to go to, what if we help dig deep wells? What if our lives were such deep wells that we had been connected to the source of life, that it was so deep that then our family and our coworkers and our neighbors and our friends, what if they then too were drawn into this deep well of life? What might happen if you and I dug And what if, like Abraham, if you read Abraham's life, it's kind of a mess, actually. But if 
also in his life, he kept coming back to the source of life. Very dumb decision Abraham made because he made a bunch. Go read Genesis 12 to like 25. What if, what if in the middle of our poor decisions, our falling short, our not being able to follow the rules, the birth order issues, what if in that we found the source It's the grace of God that comes to us and says, Welcome to my family. Live from faith and right relationship with me, and it will change your life, and it will change your life for eternity, and it will change your family's life, and it will change the life of everyone you come into contact with if you live from a place of deep wealth. And this is what Abraham knew the source of life of the deeper things. That's it today. If you don't know, the source of life. You don't know how to get to the place of the deepest well. This is what Paul ends this section about. It was Jesus who died for your justification so that you could be in right relationship with God, so that you could know who you are, that you can know God's grace is extended to you, that love is yours to receive here and now. This is who God is in his church. If you already made that decision today and you already are a follower of Jesus, then we are called to be the place of deep wealth. Because we know the source. It brings life. Right? Did you catch, back to the analogy of the New Zealand farm, did you notice no fences? Just source of life. Fences keep things out. Right? Well, yeah, but we don't need fences in churches. We need deep. don't know the source of life, maybe today you choose to say, Jesus, I just want to know you. Father, will you help us today as we prepare to go this day to wherever we go next, that we'd recognize that somehow your love is for us, that you extend your grace to us in ways that are life-giving. You don't want us to have a bunch of rules that keep things controlled, but you want us to live from a place of love and life that we might find the more we seek after you, the more we find life to its fullest. So Father, help us to find ourselves wrapped up in your presence this day, to know your love, to know your grace, to know your mercy. May we not only know these things, but may we be giver of these things, much like Paul transitioned from being a man of rules to a person of grace. May that define our lives. We pray all of this in your son Jesus' name.